0: Paul, we have an excellent guest today on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. Recently, on episode 22, for Women's History Month, we did a check-in on how we're doing on our goal of being anti-sexist. It's a cornerstone goal that we have here at the Modern White Man. And if you recall on that episode, we defined an anti sexist as one who is supporting an anti sexist policy through their actions or expressing an anti sexist idea. It's actively doing the work to ensure policies in the workplace and community are producing or sustaining gender equity between gender identities and it's understanding that gender identities are equal in all their apparent differences, that there is nothing right or wrong about any gender identity. So the discussion with our guest today, Ellie Krug, helps us in this goal of being anti-sexist. And man, it was a fantastic and important discussion. I really learned a lot. So Ellie transitioned from male to female at the age of 52 and her experiences as a transgender woman and the work she has done for transgender rights and really the rights of all differences is just incredible.
1: Yeah, it really is. Ellie Krug is a writer, lawyer, and human and the founder of Human Inspiration Works, LLC. She is the author of the book Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change. And has presented on diversity and inclusion to Fortune 100 companies, law firms, nonprofits, and colleges and universities on more than a thousand occasions. In 2016, she was named by Advocate Magazine as one of the 25 legal advocates fighting for trans rights. In 2019, she received the Business of Pride Career Achievement Award from the Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal and a Legacy Award from OutFront, Minnesota's largest LGBTQ advocacy organization. You can tune into our weekly radio and podcast show, Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 to learn more about how each of us can play a role in fostering positive change in the world.
0: So you may be thinking, like, how did Ken and Paul get such a fantastic guest? That's a good question. You know, she was just so great and she still took time to be with us. It was just incredibly engaging conversation. I think y'all are really going to enjoy this conversation. I learned a lot from Ellie. And before we hop into the conversation with Ellie, I do suggest if you haven't listened to episode five, way back in the day, The Creation of Gender Roles, Why Did Men Make the Distinction, and episode six, Traditional Masculinity, How Does It Impact Men's Identity, plus, of course, episode 22 that I already mentioned on anti-sexism, you may want to first listen to those. Those discussions go really well with the conversation we have with Ellie and are a good base for our work of being anti-sexist. Also, terminology-wise, you know, in those episodes we define a lot of things you hear in this conversation, like assigned sex, gender, cisgender, transgender, non-binary, queer, etc. So you might want to check those episodes out. It can all be combined in like a big anti-sexist learning and growth package do you like that branding? And something else that we are really excited about that is new at The Modern White Man is we will post videos of our entire conversations with all of our guests on our new YouTube channel called, you guessed it, The Modern White Man. A lot of times it can be helpful to make more of a connection with the amazing guests that we have when you can actually see them having these conversations with us. So check out and subscribe to that YouTube channel And we all know why y'all are here. It is to hear from our guests. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Ellie Krug.
1: All right. Well, welcome to the show, Ellie. We're really excited to have you here.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, of course. So, you know, first of all, I have to say that you're one of those people who have found a way to fit in more than 24 hours a day because... I mean, my goodness, you're doing so much and have accomplished so much. You know, we looked through your bio. It's just so impressive. And Ken and I are both really honored that you agreed to be a guest on our, on The Modern White Man. So, you know, I came across you, Ellie, when you did a workshop at work. And I just knew immediately, like, we got to get Ellie on the show. So just love the way that you unapologetically taught us about what it means to be transgender and what we can do, you know, to be more inclusive to transgender folks in our workplaces. But also, you know, really about being more inclusive to all people, I think was a big takeaway for me. So, you know, I just loved your genuine and authentic approach to teaching um, and your message to the world that we all have the capacity to love and be good human beings. So, you know, we laid out your extremely impressive resume before you hopped on, and we're so honored to have you as a guest on The Modern White Man. So to start, can you explain for our listeners just a little bit more about your path that led you to be the founder of Human Inspiration Works, an author, a radio
2: host, sort of all the amazing things that you do? Sure. So I was a civil trial lawyer for almost 30 years in Boston and then in Iowa, where I grew up. And when I transitioned genders in 2009, and even though that's 13 years ago, only 13 years ago, for the transgender community, it's somewhere between 75 and 100 years ago. And so in 2009, trans people were not very visible. I mean, you might read something about a transgender person once or twice a month on like CNN or something like that. But for the most part, that we were, it was like this was weird for people. And so people came to me and asked, hey, what's a, what's a transgender? Come talk to us. And so I started doing that informally, but there was so much demand, I created a formal training program, Trans 101, um, with learning objectives and all that, you know, written written out document and all of that stuff. But then it became very clear to me that people really were eager and hungry to learn how to be welcoming to anyone who is considered other and so then I went on and I created a program Gray Area Thinking which frankly that I'm more known across the country for that talk that training than any other training. And that is a general human inclusivity training, it's a tool set on how to be welcoming to people who are different or other compared to us. And people just love the talk because it's it's pretty it takes very simple concepts fuses them together. I tell everybody when I do that talk that 98% of everything I'm going to tell you, you already know. At best, I'm going to give you 2% new. The problem is we just don't pay attention to much of the things that are coming past us. So all I do is connect a bunch of dots. So that training started to to take off. And as I said, I, I was the first lawyer in Iowa to ever transition It went well at first, but then my client started to fade away. And then my major client fired me one day in November of 2009. And it was, I had to close my law firm. People had to lose their jobs, unfortunately. I could have rebuilt the law firm, but I decided not to do that. I decided that I would go and live as me, finally, as Ellie Krug. And part of me is an idealist. I, you know, I'm a hopeless idealist, someone who, wants to who believes that even a single person can make a difference in the world I'm a student of dr. King and Robert F Kennedy in that regard and so when my law firm closed I came to the Twin Cities to start all over again and uh, as me where and I came to the Twin Cities where no one knew me and they <laughs> wouldn't trip over what I used to look like as as a you know as a man and and you know I'm just gonna say you say both of you, my hair was as short as yours. I just want okay. And nobody would trip over my old name. I mean, the voice is a problem. Trust me, it doesn't get me any dates. Um, but at least I would have a fresh start that way. Long, long story short, I was able to found a legal access nonprofit, but as I was doing that, people were still asking me to speak. Um, so I went to my board and said, don't give me any pay raises just give me more time off more vacation time so i can do the speaking on the side because and trust me the nonprofit job did not pay very much it was about a fifth of what i was making as a, as a civil trial lawyer and so but then the demand was so high and my heart was so much in to presenting and trying to make the world better through my trainings that i just said i got to i got to go do this i went to my board and they were good with it and Then I founded my company, Human Inspiration Works, in 2016, and since then, all I've done, in addition to some other things, but at least the stuff that puts the, you know, the food on the table, is is training and and speaking across North America. Long answer. Hey Ellie, what's your name? (laughs) (laughs) Great (laughs) answer. Minutes later, there you go. (laughs) That's an answer. So I have to ask him.
1: Yeah, I have to ask. I'm already going off script, Ellie. So I apologize, but. I'm just curious. So, if the name of the podcast didn't give it away, where we talk about the the you know cisgender white men on this podcast and in our identity, and I'm just curious for when you do the gray area thinking and you talk about you know this experience of you know quote unquote the other and being welcoming of the other, I can't help but think as a cisgender white man and and heterosexual and you know all kind of those identities, I've never really felt like the other, right, in a lot of different ways and. And I'm already seeing your your reaction of, well, I don't know about that. So I'm curious, just, well, first of all, what has been your experience with how, you know, cisgender white men kind of interact or engage in those trainings? And and what would you say to that of like, we've never really felt like the other?
2: So it's interesting that you raise that. I've given gray area thinking, I don't know, somewhere between five and 600 times since 2013, 14, whenever, whenever it started. In all of that time, I've been heckled twice. And both times were by white color men. I, by the way, I refer to white people as white color, C L O R, because most white people don't believe that
1: right? mm-hmm. white color. Mm-hmm.
2: But you know what? Uh, I'm not. You know, I, I learn from my audiences. I do, and so um, after the second heckling, which literally occurred within five minutes of me starting the talk, and the man, an older gentleman, who stood up and just said. You know, you, you haven't said a thing a thing about, you know, uh, white men. <laughs> like Well, the training's just starting. But after that, I started to incorporate into it this concept that all of us are other in one way or another. And, and frankly, white cisgender men are made other by people. I mean, the, the, the way that I put it in the training is that, you know, you, you said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people. And you didn't even know it till you got the look. Okay, which is true. I mean, you know, that uh, cis, cis straight white men who have a certain lived experience, and, and by the way, all of our lived experiences are important. Mine's no better than anybody else's, it's just a different one, and yours are different than each other, and all that stuff. But your lived experiences, for the you know, generally create views of the world. And my thought is that. The only way that we get change is through changed perspective. We don't get it through ordering. Change will not come by telling people sitting in a room, you got to think differently, oh, and here's the PowerPoint telling you that you got to think differently. Now go think differently. That doesn't work. So you have to be inspired to change. And the way that you inspire people, the way that change happens is through changed perspective, through having believed one thing, going through some kind of bumpiness or some kind of learned experience, but usually they're bumpy and then coming out on the other side and thinking, oh, wait, the world wasn't exactly the way I believed it to be. And now I'm going to go and act or think differently. So my goal with the training with gray area thinking is even for white cis men is to say, listen, you're in, you're part of this too. You you get othered just like everybody else does. And and I say this early on in the training. And I'm like, come on, we're all going to take a journey together. I, I, I'll i share with you an experience. I was in Nashville two weeks ago training federal bankruptcy judges. Had 100 judges in the room. And gray area thinking when I can do it live involves an experience where a module where we get people up and, and there are signs on the wall, 19 signs representing different identities, age, gender. Socioeconomic status, religious, com, religious affiliation, compassion, all kinds of things. And and then I I get them up and I give them prompts and say, go stand by what sign that you know is applicable to you for the prompt. So the first prompt is the identity that my parents or parental figures stressed from me growing up. And you know, just as we started the training, because as we started doing this, people are like moving all around the room. And what do I see? Under the sign. Now, remember, the prompt is the identity that my parent or parental figure stressed for me mm-hmm. growing up. What do I see standing under the sign that says "not good enough" slash failure, but a white, presumably cis man? Mm-hmm. And you see that, and and I said right there, I said, "Oh my God, my heart hurts for you. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry." Yeah, that that was what you got, and what you have had to carry. And and that's how the training works. It starts to tell people it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to allow yourself to feel. Hmm. Yeah, it's
0: such a fantastic story. An example of what we've talked a lot about, about these hierarchies that have been seeped into us (laughs) in society, these hierarchies of value and how that is detrimental to white cisgender men as well, because there's this almost like this burden or this expectation that, you know, you have to be at the top. And if you're not, then you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You're yep, that's right. Like you're a big loser, right? And and that weighs on white men. And I actually thought about that when you were talking earlier about that initial, like, Hey, you're not talking about white men. There's this, when that white, when that white man said that at the beginning of your presentation, I I've seen a lot of that with white men when they have those initial barriers up. And when I come to, like you said, like, Hey, we're on this journey together. And I bring up those hierarchies a lot. We're like, Hey, we've all been bamboozled is the word we say a lot on this podcast. It's like, we've all been bamboozled white men included that like, there's this hierarchy and it's been seeped into us. We all have to break that down. We're all into this, this together. and to see that lived experience of, yeah, you never know. there might be a white man or whoever whose parents put all this undue pressure on them. And then it's just like this internal these internal ideas of value that we really have to break
2: down. Well, and Ken, you know, one of the other things about that training, particularly, particularly as we're doing that exercise, when people stand under signs and I always, I always ask if I have enough time, you know, do you want to share why you're under the sign? You know, and the stories that I have heard, but one of the things that I always say after I hear the story is I wouldn't have known that about you by simply looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think the thing is we all, first of all, we all have, as I said, lived experiences. Secondly, all of us carry trauma, in one form or another, we do. No human gets to adulthood without suffering some form of trauma. Now, and when I was, you know, younger, now I'm like talking in up until like 55, I believe that trauma was only that. Mm. Um, mm. I, I did not understand that trauma is what you heard, what you witnessed, okay and and maybe even only heard or witnessed vicariously, not even directly, you know, secondary trauma and and that trauma you know i mean I, I I've written a book about my father as an alcoholic and his going missing and and how that just tremendously impacted me and my family, but particularly me um and and you know that's something that I have carried my entire life, and it continues. It continues to impact me so for example you know my father would go missing we'd play krug roulette at my house where you know we don't know if dad's coming home for dinner or not and this is pre cell phone days i mean it's not like you could call you know he's sitting at some bar somewhere is he gonna come home or not today even today if you are like important to me you know a child or a dear friend or a family member or relative and you are late by 10 minutes without letting me know, I start to panic. Mm.
0: Yeah. You know, I always think about that. You never know what people are going through, right? You never know Mm -hmm. the lived experiences people have, and you can't paint people in boxes or or just by their identity. You, You really just never know. And that's, that's important when thinking about like the trainings that you do or trainings that workplaces do to have that mentality of, yeah, like in the workplace, you don't know what everybody's been through and how that impacts their
2: world views. That's right. Yeah. But we, but, you know, but again, because we're human and, you know, and because we have like short, very short attention spans about things we want to, I mean, we want to group and label people. We want to, and then once we haven't grouped, we want to attach things to those groups. And by the way, I, I, you know, I'm a trainer. I, you know, I'm like trying to change the world, but. I still struggle with grouping and labeling as well i do i mean it's just part of how we get socialized it's part of it's part of our wiring i mean it's part of also self-protection and all that kind of jazz you yeah. know yeah. you know stuff that goes back to the savannah you know five million years ago so right
0: you you know you mentioned ellie that was the transgender 101 training kind of the first one that you created when individuals are coming up to you and saying hey tell me about what is transgender um, you know, that that transgender 101, when I looked through that training, that really called to me in particularly one part that I thought was really interesting. And you, you say that persons who are transgender have become far more visible, which reflects greater societal acceptance still of the letters in the LGBTQ alphabet. So that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning that I may be one of those letters The the T's. Transgender persons more often face unique challenges relative to personal relationships, public interactions, and other things that many take for granted. So could you explain more about some of those unique challenges faced by transgender persons and and with that, some examples of what cisgender folks can do to make trans people feel welcomed and accepted?
2: Well, you know, that, I mean, that's like a whole nother out two hours kind of a discussion. Yeah,
0: Paul, Paul and I are good at answer, you know, asking those questions that could last hours. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, so I, here, let me give you like the most vivid example, okay? I want you to imagine that 10 states have passed laws mandating that any child who is diabetic cannot play sports, you know, for fear that, you know, the child's diabetes might be exacerbated or they... God forbid they could have a some kind of a you know shock uh, attack during sports, or that you know really we we think that maybe they'll grow out of the diabetes, and we're just we just believe that allowing them to play sports and give them you know maybe some special access because they're diabetic. We just think that that's that's just promoting false diabetes. Now, can you imagine the two of you, the reaction? across this country if such laws were passed. Can you imagine the outcry, right? Right. Severe. And yet, that is actually what has happened right now in 10 states for transgender girls, kindergarten through university, senior year. That, that absolutely is what's happened. And let's go back again to the diabetic analysis, diabetic child, Can you imagine what the reaction would be if a state passed a law that said diabetic children can't be treated by doctors? If you treat a diabetic child, doctor, you're going to go to prison for 10 years, be a felony. Can you imagine that? The outcry over that. And yet we have Arkansas, Texas, and Alabama that have passed laws along those lines. And so my community is in the midst of being erased. It is. And I, you know, that sounds, oh my gosh, that sounds so over the top, Ellie, but it's true. You know, and and particularly where you can't even, you know, doctors can't even prescribe puberty blockers for children. And so trans girls are going to grow up with this voice. And I, you know, I joked about it earlier, but trust me, this voice is a barrier for me in many, many ways. Every day I am reminded that I am other because people give me what I call as the look. And 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 sometimes it's a stare. Sometimes, oh my God, you know, it's it's little, you know, little kids that look at me and then they're looking at mom. And I know as I'm walking by, they're asking mom, is that a boy or a girl, man or a woman, you know, type thing. And so that's the landscape, okay? And, and it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse for my community. And I'm doing my best, you know, I, well, that, well we, if you want, you can ask me, what are you doing for doing your best? Okay, but, but what can you do? What can white cis people do? Number one, be aware of what's happening across the country. And, and please, be outraged about it. Don't be like, oh, that's too bad, okay? I mean, be outraged. Secondly, self-educate about what's going on. I mean, go and, you know, if you see, because trust me, there are all kinds of articles out there. You know, self-educate about it and talk to other people and and let them know this is what, can you believe that this is what we're doing? I mean, this, there is no other group in America that states are targeting with laws. You know, 190 pieces of legislation against transgender people introduced this legislative season. So, educate other people about it. Thirdly, be kind to us. So, the what your listeners are seeing and experiencing, and and and, and certainly experienced at the beginning, as soon as I said hi, you know, I'm happy to be here, was bumpiness because. The voice does not match the appearance, and what that in in for trans people, um, that's called passing. Uh, students of um, American history may recall that that the phrase passing actually relates to Jim Crow South, where light, very light skinned African Americans, blacks, very light skinned, pass for white. They escape a lot of the ravages of Jim Crow, and they they would have. The privilege that white people would have in the trans community, passing is the extent no one would ever guess that you were assigned a different gender at birth. Okay, now if I don't open my mouth, I th- you know I think I'm okay. I think I pass, but as soon as I open it, we're you know we got all kinds of trouble. Although you know um, the, the 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 joke, one of you have heard the joke, which is that you know there are half a dozen older women in Bemidji, Minnesota, four are seventy, two are pushing eighty. They just think I smoked five packs of cigarettes today for twenty five. years. They've got no idea whatsoever about me, <laughs> but 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 here's the deal, okay? And this, so let's 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 can we relatively agree that it's white cis men who control the levers of power in America? Can we agree with that?
0: Absolutely, one hundred
2: percent. Okay. Can we agree that they are also the ones who set the culture in the organizations that they lead? They have the ability to change that. Culture, but they said it. And can we also agree that they're the ones who can model about trans people, particularly trans women who don't pass? And by model, I mean you can say, I don't care that she is going to make Sally and Joe in the back room uncomfortable because the voice doesn't match. I don't care that maybe our clients are going to go, what is this? Okay. Because it's obvious that we have somebody different working for us. I don't care about that. She's qualified, go hire her, bring her on board. Okay. That is what white cis men can do. And I'm lucky because I at least look it. There are other trans women out there. They don't even look it. So they've got the voice thing going. They've got the look thing going. But guess what? They're women. Guess what? They're humans. Guess what? They deserve the opportunity to go and succeed just like everyone else. And I cannot tell you enough, this passing issue is going to become a bigger and bigger problem in employment because there are going to be more and more trans people showing up who don't pass, who want jobs. Yeah. Long explanation, no. but I hope
0: I mean, that's incredibly helpful. And, you know, there's two things that just I want to I reiterate to our listeners to like really that I think you said that's incredibly important to raise awareness about is Paul and I preach, especially Paul, you know, he knows my love of history, right? And like, I preach the importance of, of all of us doing the work to understand the history. And what Paul and I have talked about on our journey, it, you know, we we point out to to folks that we talk to, like hey, there were laws in place that targeted Black people. Black people were not allowed to do things. And it's almost like, a wow, I can't believe that laws like that existed. That is happening today to trans people, as you said. I, w- I just want to yes. reiterate that because I think that that's incredibly important. And, and people need to understand that, right? Because that the, the thing that seems so crazy that we did that, you know, not even that long ago, frankly, to Black and brown folks, Indigenous folks, that's happening today and there's only more and more laws so i wanted to highlight that
2: yep. and and the people and the people passing those laws i'm interrupting you but i mean they are for the most part white cis men okay who have never ever even met a transgender person yes
0: you know that that reminds me i was just listening to a podcast on these new laws you know these new trans laws in texas specifically and I thought about that, the, the dehumanization component of white supremacy and supremacy in general to uphold the dominant caste, you, you, you dehumanize folks. And on this podcast, they're interviewing this high schooler who's transitioning. And it, like, if you, you hear these stories from these people, how can you not just create this whole new level of empathy for for these human beings, but until you are faced with that or meet these these people, it's so easy to dehumanize and pass these laws. When it's so easy to forget that these are human beings that you're you're
2: impacting. Yeah, I mean the you know the governor uh, before Kristi Noem, uh, the governor of um, of South Dakota, his first name was Dennis. I'm forgetting the last name, but he the legislature had passed the bill to ban uh, trans uh, kids uh, from using. Uh, locker rooms and, 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 you know, restrooms assigned with their gender identity. And the night before the governor was going to sign the bill, somebody convinced him to sit with three trans people and have a, they ended up having a two hour conversation. And the next day, the governor said, I'm not going to sign the bill. These are humans. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be part of it. And the governor of uh, of Utah did the same thing. I mean, he, he came out and said, I'm not going to do this to these, these kids. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to Signed the bill that was the you know the anti-transports bill. I'm not going to do it, but of course the Utah legislature over overrode the, the veto. So, I mean, people. Well, I I just I just think that you know what I what I say is that the the only way through the crap. Okay, this is part of gray area thinking. The only way through the crap, the only way that we're going to get through it is by becoming familiar. With people who are different or other—that's the only way. We we are not going to get through the crap by a million powerpoints. We're not going to get through the crap by you know ad campaigns on TV. We're not going to get through it. We're going to only get through it by sitting down with people who are different from us. That we don't you know that we think are other and being brave, okay? Because bravery is on all sides, and then just engaging. Tell me a little bit about you. Hey, do you have a do you have a child in your life? Hey, do you have a pet in your life? You got you got a golden retriever too, just like I. Do. Oh, all right. <laughs> tell me about tell me about your dog. What's what's your dog's name? You know those kinds of things. And it sounds so incredibly simple, but it's so incredibly difficult for us because we're all in our own little places where these are echo chambers and we only kind of listen to the same things from the same people that we only want to be with and all of that stuff. And we have to be brave. And And I think that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on. Um, I, I think that the reason that my work works is that people have no idea what to expect when I show up in a space to, to present. And of course the voice throws them, but once they adjust, I think that what happens is they find out that I'm kind of funny. I'm very, you know, self-effacing. I make fun of myself all the time. You know, I'm not on a high horse. I don't, you know, I don't preach to them. I just say, hey, come on, come on, let's do this together.
1: And all, all I can think about too, as you're talking, is just this obsession that we have as a culture that comes from white supremacy. And we've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast about white supremacy culture and its characteristics and one of them being either or. And it just, it's so embedded in us to, and I think, you know, to be fair, like psychologically, the way our brain works is to think in an either or way because it it makes things simpler for us in a, in a way, right? And it helps us to make decisions faster and figure out either it's this or it's that, you know, dog or a cat, right? And then we can, we can distinguish things, right? But it just feels like we're obsessed in this culture with, it's got to be this or that. And even as you're talking of, and of course, for, you know, obviously gender is on a spectrum, but even for you, like I hear you saying, you know, I almost check all the boxes for people to see me as a woman, but then I open my mouth. Right. And then, then it's like, oh, wait, what? So there's still that either or there, but like you just have to be either this or that. And there's just no gray area. And that of course is what your training is all about. But it just feels like such a grind, you know, every day, I think, for humans to get out of that thinking.
2: Well, well, and, and you know, biologically, you know, fight or flight response, that's either or. Those who have like something in the middle of the pause, <laughs> they might, you know, that doesn't lend to survival, okay? Um, it really doesn't. But I want the two of you, I mean, notwithstanding how I've been pretty adamant about all of the oppression that my community is facing i do want the two of you and your listeners to understand that i'm actually an optimist that i actually believe in the power of humans to change so let's can we go back to gray area thinking and can we go back to that exercise with the signs on the wall okay do you know that the last question that people, I mean, the second question is the identity that garners gives me the most privilege. The third question is the identity others use as a reason to judge or discriminate against me. The fourth question is the identity I struggle with the most on a day-to-day basis. On that one, somewhere between a quarter and a half the room stand under one sign in response to the identity I struggle with. And that sign is not good enough slash failure. I see it across all sectors, all places, but it's the last prompt Now, remember, I'm telling you, I'm an optimist. Okay. I'm actually kind of like the canary in the coal mine, but actually, this canary is thriving. It's, it's like alive, not like suffering that it's going to die. The last prompt, the identity I want to be known for is, and somewhere between 70 and 100% of the room stand on one sign. And do you know what that sign is? compassion. Regardless of whether I'm red states, blue states, Bernie states, big cities, small cities, people want to be known overwhelmingly. And the other signs they go to is like family, which family is about compassion. It used to be about blood, but family is now about affinity or religion. And religion is about compassion. But people don't want to be known for money. They don't want to be known. They don't usually want to be known for skin color or LGBTQ status. They don't want to be known or education level. They don't want to be known for that. They want to be known as being caring for other humans. And the problem is this I am one little small person, but I am finding I may be the only one in America that is going across places, giving people an opportunity to self identify. And they continue to come and say, Compassion. It is a story that we all need to hear. And let us remind you that the person leading the exercise where people pick compassion is a transgender woman who does not pass. Yeah. So I, I, a lot of hope. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. It's just, it's great because I, I,
1: feel, I feel like there's this tension that you're talking about between identities that society kind of forces us into versus identities that we aspire to have or to even identities that we want the world to see in us. And it's really interesting because that's kind of what this podcast is about. I mean, the whole concept is white men can be better, right? Like we can actually create a better identity because right now, you know, the track record and (laughs) the perception of of white men is not good, right? So in Canada, like, well, we can change that, right? We can actually create a better identity, but there's still that tension of like, this is who I was, or this is how society sees Mm -hmm. me as, but this is who I can be. But I was curious to ask you a little bit about, you know, you talk about in your bio about leaving one group of humans, this rich white man lawyer group to another group, marginalized transgender human woman group. And just that interesting transition and jump from one group to another, you know, just could you talk more about what it was like to be like in the first group? especially the white male part, obviously. And then, you know, what also was your experience with interacting with quote-unquote traditional masculinity?
2: Well, So I think the background has to be that I grew up in the 60s and 70s where the idea that your brain could, didn't match your body and you could do something about it. I mean, it's just totally foreign. And and so even though I, I had these ideas in my head about a gender, about, you know, I, I loved wearing lingerie, trust me, ooh it was wonderful. Um, you know, and then I had same-sex attractions going on, but I, I thought all of it would go away. I suppressed it. And I just, you know, I ended up in the jock category. I mean, I was a football player. I was a basketball player. I was a baseball player. I was, I started on the front line. I was the front line guard on the football team. And, and you know, and I had a mustache when I was 13 and short hair. Well, back in the seventies, it was longer hair, but but you know, growing up in that kind of genre, and, and you know, had the group of guys that we hung out with, and all of that stuff. And I grew up in Iowa, and I so I think that one thing that we should note is that in that kind of culture, the expectation was that men were on top for sure. But it also was that you ha- you would have a hard work ethic, that you didn't get anything just simply by showing up. And so I, I developed a, an incredibly hard work ethic, good work ethic, and so. What all of that did for me is it allowed me to literally get on the top of the pyramid. I was a hardworking lawyer. I was good in the courtroom. I won my trials. And I hung out with only other white, successful people in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, even though Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 300,000 people, metropolitan area, all kinds of people of different skin colors and all of that stuff. I didn't see those folks. I only saw people that were like me. And so the very first time someone came to me when I still presented as male and and told me about white privilege, I said to them, What the hell are you talking about? Hmm. I paid I paid for my most of my way through college by by having worked, you know, I was working 40 hour a week job in my senior year of high school, getting some credit for it, but you know, making two fifty an hour. As a receiving clerk for a department or a drugstore, you know I'm like, what are you talking about? I've worked my tail off all this way, you know. There's no, I have never had any privilege. Fast forward, you know, you change. Remember at the beginning of this interview eight hours ago, I talked about, <laughs> you know, I talked about changed perspective, right? That the only way, the only way that we actually see the world differently is that we have to go through bumpiness, and then our perspective changes. And so, you know, now I, you know, I, I'm trans. We just talked about the marginalization of my community, and, and of course, women are still marginalized in America, across the world, in some ways, horribly marginalized. Let's talk about what's going on in Ukraine with the male, white color Russian soldiers doing to Ukrainian girls and women, which makes my heart hurt incredibly. But along that way, I, come to, I did come to understand the skin color was never a barrier it opened doors for me. Mm-hmm. And the more that I learned about other, the more I realized that just having this skin color makes all the difference in the world. I, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a neighbor, I, I moved into a new neighborhood I, last year, you know, I've got a nice group of people next door, you know, getting to know each other. He grew up in Nebraska he came over one day, he knew the work that I do. And he came over one day and he said, Ellie, I want you to talk to me about white privilege. And I said, all right, well, well, here's the best example I can give you. Let's just say the four of you, you and three of your buddies get in the car one day and drive from rural Nebraska where you are. And you want to go downtown, driving around downtown Omaha. OK, let's just say you go and do that. The odds of you being stopped by the police would be zero. OK, let's assume it's four black kids from the poor part of Omaha who decide they're going to get in the car and drive around Omaha one night. You know, you're in your car, they're in their car. The odds of them being stopped, astronomical. Could be the same kind of car. Mm -hmm. They could be wearing the same kind of clothes. I didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. I had no understanding about that. Mm -hmm.
0: Ellie, you've you've given us so much to take away for, you know, Paul and I always try to think about what are concrete examples or steps that white cisgender men can do to be Anti-racist, anti-sexist. You've already given us so many good things. It, it's incredible. I'm excited to like go back in this conversation and pull all these out for our, for our listeners because, I mean, it's just so many good examples so far. So I'm pulling from what you've been saying for maybe one last big question as to for the day to day. So that's I, I like to focus on that with white men specifically. A lot of them are like just in the day to day lives. What can what mm-hmm. can we do and I really like how you said how for one if you're a white leader at an organ white male leader at an organization or you're hiring or you're working with clients like have the backs of you know your employees and your colleagues right if people don't like that you have their back so I'm, I'm thinking about how in the day to day I also think of your gray area thinking that you've brought up a few times and I just love that so much and when I was looking more into the gray area thinking there were three tools and, and like processes that you've talked about in this podcast so far, but even like in the day to day of how, how those three could work, I think it would be really helpful for us to think about every day as white men, what we can do. So those, those three tools that you have a part of this gray area thinking for interacting with diverse humans uh, in a mindful and compassionate way, as you said, that important of compassion, which again, I want to reiterate because that's Gosh, it's so powerful and important, right? But you have one awareness of another human's vulnerability or suffering. So it's that awareness. Two, risk taking to alleviate or lessen that vulnerability or suffering. And then three, it's that compassion and kindness both for others and for oneself. So what I'm wondering is if how does that play out in the day-to-day? Like what are things that our listeners, these are, you know, white cisgender men specifically can really do to, to play that out every day to continue to to be better and
2: continue to support people who are, quote-unquote, other? Right. Well, that's a great question. And I just want the two of you and your listeners to understand, we humans can make anybody other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can make the, the tall, you know, the six-foot-five, white guy other. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey elevator man, what's it like up there? <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we can... We can do that. So I wanna make sure that your listeners understand Mm. my work is about all humans of all kinds. But let us I'll give you two examples, what white cis men can do. First, let's go back to that interviewing example, okay? Where the person interviewing the white cis guy, interviewing somebody who is different or other, whatever category we wanna put that in, okay? Mm. Understands that there's gonna be some bumpiness in the workplace because this person's gonna come in because everybody else is pretty homogenous. What that white guy can do is he can say, we're gonna change. Mm -hmm. We're gonna change the way the culture is. We're gonna hire this person. And then what that person can also do, let's just follow that for a second, okay? What that person can also do is understand that the person that they just brought in is their Jackie Robinson or Julie Robinson. Mm -hmm. Remember Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Mm And it's important for the, the cis white person, man in power, to know and understand that the work just began. That is, by, by making being brave and bringing this person in, now the real work begins. Because the white cis dude has to protect Jackie Robinson. And how do you protect Jackie Robinson? Well, you know, you see, you you observe what's going on in the workplace. And by the way, the Jackie and Julie Robinsons will not come to you. They have been taught, regardless of whether we're talking about skin color or gender or LGBTQs, they have been taught not to complain. And so the the leader, the white cis dude, understands that I've got to keep on knocking on the door and asking, how's it going? Hmm. How are you doing? Because they have to develop trust so that the person that they've hired can trust them to now share that they're making all kinds of jokes about me. And they're telling me, oh, they're just kidding. Okay. But those jokes hurt. So this is like about intentionality and and not performative stuff. It's about being real. So that's one example. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second example that I want to give you is that white cis dudes can cede power. And by that, I mean, it's as easy as if You're in a conference room, you got eight people there with you. The six of those people are white dude guys who've been speaking throughout the whole meeting. And then you got a woman and then you got, you know, the LGBTQ person who've not said a word throughout the whole meeting. It's again about intentionality. The white cis dude leader can say, hold on a second, we got 10 minutes left in the meeting. You know, Sally and and Franco, neither of them had said a word. I want to make sure I hear from both of them. And then it turns out that Sally's got this really great thing, okay, that she's just, this is a brand new idea that we hadn't even considered. Then what the white cis dude leader says, the meeting we're going to keep this meeting an extra 10 minutes mm-hmm. so that we can consider what Sally's telling us right now. That is seeding power appreciate you
1: articulating that way, that it's seeding power. And we even our last guest talked about sort of this idea of interrupting and just being a voice for other people. And it's just really important that you that you articulate that way, because I also hear in that, or someone might say, well, that's, that's a white dude, being a, you know, a white savior, right? That saviorism syndrome, or like that, even male savior syndrome, yeah, and it's it's and that's I think what causes me to pause because I'm like, well, I don't want to be a savior. I don't want to condescend this person, but I feel like the alternative of not saying anything at all is a whole lot worse, right?
2: Well, and and so you're back to you know labeling, okay, mm. because we gotta label everybody, yeah. But I mean, again, if you're gonna lead, right? Leading, you know, if you're gonna be a leader, leading takes, you know takes leading, and I, I think one of the One of the things that happens in the workplace, particularly, is that leaders, and usually they're white cis men, okay, don't understand the the importance of trust, particularly for people who are not white, who aren't male, okay? That that there's a there's an element of trust that always exists within the workplace, that the leader's gonna look out for you, the leader's gonna speak up, the leader's gonna do the right thing. And leaders, white who are usually white cis men, they fall down on the job quite a bit, and they don't do that. And then they break the trust with the people who are different or other in their team. And the white meant they don't even understand, first of all, that they had trust. Then they don't understand that they broke it. And then what happens is the people who are different or other, they just leave. They're like, this, this ain't working for me. I'm going to go somewhere else where I can trust somebody to do the right thing and that they understand the power of trust. So this is, you know, again, very long discussion, but this is about culture, you know, and understanding what culture is like and the people in power very, I mean, I go into places, you know, because I do consulting in addition, and we start talking about culture, like, what are you talking about? I'm like the day to day vibe of this place, you know, that people feel who are here you know, and, and you, you created this. They're like, what, what, no, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah, you did. You created this and you got to understand it. And then you may, you're going to, looks like you're going to have to change it. So, yeah. all right. That's a whole other discussion. You know, Ellie, the,
0: maybe there's that la- the last thing I want to pull that is really sticking with me is when you talk about your, your work, you talk about other, right? And it's so easy for cis white men, but really everybody, the way that we've all been ingrained to think of others, everything but cisgender white men, when in reality, cisgender white men are other as well. There is no normal. And like that deep-seated, it, again, these hierarchies, that deep-seated societal issues, organizational has been so ingrained in us, it is really hard to break down. I think it's so important to, to break down. I think we especially as white cisgender men need to like re, almost like recondition ourselves to realize, hey, there is no normal, right? We are not creating this this workplace to be better for those who are other. It's you know what I mean? It's like it's for uh, it's for all humans. We're other. There is no normal. We have to really reshape that thinking. Like it's a powerful that that's really sitting with me to think about it that way.
2: And can the default should always be compassion. It should always be compassion. Yes. Understanding that all of us have different lived experiences. Understanding, again, that you can't tell anybody's story simply by looking at them. Okay. And understanding that we all carry bags of trauma behind us. Some people have way bigger bags than others, but everyone's got a bag of trauma trailing them and understanding that that affects the way people show up. And that, that, that again, it's about compassion. And, and I also, before I go, I wanna make sure I say compassion for self as well. Because remember, I talked about fifty percent, 25 to 50% of the room under that one sign, the identity I struggle with the most, not good enough. There, there are so many people out there that are not happy with who they are. Some people who hate themselves, you know and and when we're not good with ourselves it's so easy to not be good to others the the beginning part for compassion for all humans is to have compassion for you
1: what came to me immediately we had we had a conversation our episode a long time ago around this idea of the, how white men their self there's a lot of self hatred with white men because because We know that we hold these identities that are automatically put us at the top, yet we look around at our life and we're like, or even just think for a second, I don't feel like I'm on top, but I should be on top, right? I should have all this money. I should have all this fame. I should have all this accolade. I should feel like I'm on top, but I don't feel like I'm on top. So it creates some of this self-hatred or some of this self-loathing or something's wrong with me. Right. Um, that makes it so difficult for us to then understand what everyone else is going through or build compassion for other people. So that's, again, where like we as white men need to do some of that internal self-love work in order yeah. to then build relationships and and build that compassion for other people. Yeah. And it's hard for me. I mean, personally, it's hard for me because when I when I think, oh, my story matters too, or my trauma matters too, or my feelings matter too, I can't help but go to that, like, all lives matter, you know? I'm like, oh, that just doesn't sit right, you know, but it, it is true. It, it, all of that that I hold does matter. And it matters not just for me personally, but how I create that capacity for compassion,
2: empathy for other people. And Paul, you've just now revealed the secret of how we can get past the divisions that are pulling us all down as a country. And that is just simply talking about what it is that you're afraid of what it is that you struggle with, what it is that you love and allowing everyone to show up and do that.
0: Yeah. Ellie, I think that is such a perfect way to end this, right? With that compassion. And, you know, it, it is just Ellie Krug. It has been an absolute honor and pleasure talking with you. We could not be more thankful for the learning and growth that you've provided for us and our listeners I mean, it really is. This has been an incredible conversation. Again, I could, I could feel like I could talk to you for days and days. It's just so it's so great. And uh, for our listeners, you know, we will provide in the description of this episode links to Ellie's company, Human Inspiration Works, her book, Getting to Ellen, and a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change, and her website so you can find all the incredible work that she does. Ellie, thanks
2: so much again. Paul and Ken, thank you so very much for having me. It's just been a real pleasure. And you've done a really great job of interviewing, even though this isn't the day job. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for allowing me to be able to uh, talk with your listeners. Thank you, Ellie.
0: Wow, what an amazing conversation. I learned a lot. Thinking about takeaways, there are many. She is just incredible we're so thankful to to have had ellie as a guest and to have that conversation for us and for y'all it, it was just a really powerful conversation I, I really enjoyed that learned a lot and very thankful for that
1: yeah a lot of insights a lot of learnings packed into an hour and a lot to unpack as we love to say around here and
0: we don't say enough anymore no one might let's, say
1: yeah we, we're bringing it back We'll call it a comeback. We're
0: not calling these takeaways anymore. We're calling them conversation unpacking.
1: Unpack, uh, unpackings.
0: You know my love of branding things. Yes. We're gonna brand this segment the unpack. (laughs) The unpack. The unpack. Not unpacking, just the unpack. It's the unpack. I feel like
1: I'm picturing like an inside-out backpack. That's an app. An unpack.
0: Yeah. That would be the logo. We'll get on that. We're going to have an inside-out backpack as the logo for this segment <laughs> called The Unpack.
1: As you know, as white men, we think all of our ideas are good ideas. So we're just going to you know, follow up on this and yeah. take go down this road. Inside-out backpack. Yeah.
0: Paul, what is your unpack?
1: My unpack of the day <laughs> is having the backs of transgender people, or really just people in general, especially those who are kind of considered, quote-unquote, the other. You know, for me, I really do struggle with this label of white saviorism i don't know if we've talked a lot about that concept before but it is something that you hear a lot of criticism from really all all across the dei community of white people you know riding in on our horse to save people of color to save marginalized folks and it's obviously legit right like that is there's a reason it's there's a word for it right that is the experience of people of color. It's the experience of women or really anyone who's been marginalized that white people who do feel like we need to come in and, and save people. However, the way that Ellie talked about the importance of us, especially white cisgender men, not necessarily being the savior, but you know what we've talked a lot about, leveraging our power. And the importance of that, if you have someone in your organization or someone is hired into the organization who is, in this case, transgender, really the importance as a leader, as a manager, or even a coworker, to really go out of your way to check in with them, to have their back, to speak up for them sometimes in meetings, to speak up for them to other leaders about their needs, and I, I just really like that because it really helped me see the importance of that as practical things that we can do, talking about our role, right, in creating an equitable society and still checking myself, like, am I doing this because I want to save them or am I doing this because this is important for their needs and this is important for equity in the organization? So for me, it was just a really motivating thing to think about how I can do that practically every day and, and to identify those who are othered Yet at the same time, you know, a lot of the conversation was like, we're all othered. Yeah,
0: that was one of my unpack from this conversation was that where it's like, we've been all of us, not just, you know, cisgendered white men, but everybody Mm -hmm. when you think about other, it's always like everyone but cisgendered white men when in reality, there is no normal, Mm -hmm. we are all other. And for us to remind ourselves to remind other white men that, I think is a really healthy framework. Like it's really healthy mm-hmm. to remind ourselves there is no normal. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it's it's been socially constructed in a way where it's been seeped into us and we've been conditioned for so long. We need to recondition ourselves just that there is there is no normal. There's no other. And that was a big takeaway for me. And I also love how, Ellie, when you mentioned that, you know, a saviorism, being a white savior, she was just like, well, that's just another label, Mm -hmm. right? Labels aren't helpful when you just, I mean, they can be, of course, but like when you just label people, it shuts people down. And it's at the end of the day, it's not showing the compassion and learning that everyone needs, which is my other unpack slash takeaway is that the importance of of compassion and we really need to be compassionate to other identities, other people and ourselves. For me, even thinking about being compassionate towards other white men who are not as far along on this journey, have legitimate fears and anxiety, or maybe have had these hierarchies that have been seeped into them that really make them feel like deep down like, threatened or like a failure like we have to show compassion to those people too and and that i think ellie really preaching the importance of compassion because that's how you're going to make difference you can't order people to be more equitable as she says as well like you cannot order people to you really have to bring them in and have this conversation this is about all of us we're all different we all deserve compassion and that's really how we can make a change
1: yeah, it makes me think of how I feel like I've been conditioned just in the activism world or the social justice world that we only have a limited amount of compassion and it's only should be reserved for certain groups of people. And then for those who are kind of not part of that group, kind of an othering, right? They don't deserve compassion or I don't have the capacity to have compassion for everyone. But I, I just think that's that's a lie. And I think we all have that ability to have compassion or at least empathy, put myself in the shoes of everyone else. And, you know, my takeaway, my next steps is just really bringing some awareness to who I reserve compassion for and who I don't. And how can I extend compassion to everyone? And, yeah, I just feel like, I just feel like it's, um, it has these negative consequences, especially other white men who, you know, ironically, I share the identity with to not have compassion for them. But then, yeah, the lack of compassion, that lack of connection means I do want to force these things on them, you know, make them go to these trainings or force them to think differently or things like that. And that just doesn't work, mm-hmm. you know. But if I allow myself to be compassionate and empathetic, my approach changes. Even I just soften in thinking about my approach with them, which I think goes yeah. a long way to actually actually changing people's minds, which is the end goal, right? right?
0: Yeah, I was just, I just recently had a dinner with friends and You know, they were asking some questions about the podcast, and one of the white male friends of mine sounded weird saying it like that. He's a white guy who's my friend, right?
1: I like how Ellie just called us white dudes. White dudes. He's a white dude.
0: We're cis dude. He's a white cis dude. Yeah. And you know, he he was like, "Hey, do you do you ever think it's gonna like flip flop, where then you know, black, indigenous people of color, Mm -hmm. other identities are gonna be have the upper hand, right?" And It's so easy to have been doing this work forever to like roll your eyes or like kind of be like Mm -hmm. whatever. But instead, stop and Mm -hmm. think and be like, you know what? That's a legitimate question. You could tell he was kind of nervous asking me about it. It's probably this deep-seated feeling threatened, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And instead of doing that, right, like having that reaction, but having that compassion and being like, you know what? That's a good question. Like let's, that's, you're not trying to, you're legitimately wondering and let's talk about that. And we did, and it was a great conversation. And I just thought about that when she was talking about compassion, because I remember walking away from that conversation feeling really good. And it's easy to walk away from that conversation not feeling good. But I think that, you know, that's how you're able to change minds. That's how people grow. You have to be able to ask these questions. You have to be able to give compassion and be like, yeah, let's talk about that. And I, uh, Hey, any, any excuse for me to drop our favorite line when you're used to privilege equality feels like oppression, you know, at a, like a dinner table, like I was able to do I'm all about, but, uh, that, I think that that was a real, like a, a real life example and, you know, super well-intentioned, you know, he's a great guy. I know him really well. And like, that's okay to ask that question to me. Right. Yep. So that's, that's an example for that compassion come in. I
1: love that example. And I even, I think, I don't know if you saw it, but I rolled my eyes. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. And then, but when you say it like that, yeah, cause it's the fear that whether we label it as legitimate or not, it doesn't matter. The fear is there, right? It's, it's, or the hesitancy or the nervousness is there. Yeah that's a reality right yeah and i feel like as white men too you know this tough guy mentality we've been conditioned to like invalidate emotions right or invalidate fears and just be like get over it right like oh it's not that big of a deal you're you're being a diva or you know something like that so even some of that was coming up for me of like you know i'll just get over it like or think logically right right let's just set aside your emotion emotions and think logically for a second right do you think that's really going to happen right or so that's immediately what came up for me. But then but then the, the truth is those emotions are real. And at the core, we all want need to be validated. Yes. Yeah, exactly. For regardless of whether what we're believing is yeah. rational or not.
0: I also even got to bring up hierarchies at a dinner table. I was like, hey, we've all been seeped with these hierarchies of value. We all have. Mm-hmm. And I was like, us white men have as well been conditioned a certain way that we have to break it down we didn't decide to be conditioned that way. Society forever has conditioned us that way. You see how that conversation just went Mm -hmm. to like a total positive place. Yeah, Yeah, so that's... Ellie just kind of like reinforced that for me and it's something that, you know, I want to move past... I'm continuing to move past stage seven in the process, I believe it is, of self-righteousness that I've been very open saying in this podcast I continued to to be susceptible to that of being self-righteous and like, oh, yeah, like you should know this by now. Not helpful, right? And I've continued to move past it. You get more into compassion. You get to that community of love and resistance. I love that conversation with Ellie. Thank you to Ellie Krug. And I mentioned this at the end of our interview with Ellie. Check out the descriptions and sign up for Ellie's newsletter. Check out her website. She does just incredible work. If you and your organization want to address a lot of the issues that Ellie talked about, reach out to her for your organization. Uh, She's just, can't speak highly enough and thankful to her. And for you all, go watch the interview. YouTube channel, The Modern White Man is what it's called. So go check that out and then subscribe to that. Go on our website, subscribe to our newsletter. You can subscribe to so many things at The Modern White Man. Thanks, everybody, and until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work.